Hello and welcome to another episode of Coffee and Consoles, the show where we look at some of your favorite songs from multiple points of view. I'm Kevin with my co-host John. Today we are covering the legendary John Prine's Sam Stone. Very nice, Johnny boy. You always do such a good job with those. I intros. try. You know what? It's my it's my job. You know, I try to do my best here. <laughs> it's literally my job. <laughs> picking and grinning, doing some nice picking over the picking Sam Stone by the late great John Prine. Yeah, unfortunately, we have a another kind of in memor memorandum. Is yeah, that is that the, the word? Yeah. Or mem- memoriam. In memoriam episode. You know, episode a for us. Downer, somber episode, and even with a very uh, kind of sad song. Yeah, well, so this was actually my choice. Yeah, and You must be very I'm, depressed. I'm like, clearly, I'm not. Well, I'm not like a Vietnam veteran, clearly. But something about this song, is I, I feel like it's really relatable, yeah. even if you're not necessarily a veteran. Yeah. So I don't know. I've always, I've always liked Yeah, I agree. Like how he just paints the picture, with that soldier coming home and having that, as he says, that monkey on his back and, you know, the drug addiction and just the depression, like post-war. It's very moving, very sad. Yeah. It's, it's, and it's crazy that he wrote this song when he was in his early twenties. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, off his, I mean, so quite a tune to have on your debut album. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I know, I know he's, I believe he served in the military. Himself. Yeah, I think you're correct. And he did serve during the Vietnam War, although he so, never made it over to Vietnam. I think he only was located in Germany. Not to say only, like that's nothing, but so he was overseas, but over in Germany, if I'm not mistaken. Wasn't. Wasn't Johnny Cash also stationed in Germany during that time? Could be, yeah, because he, he was definitely uh, he served too, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, most of them served <laughs> that sort of generation of musicians yeah. and artists. You know, as we'll mention probably later on in this episode, Elvis as well. So, yeah. Oh yes, Elvis. Yeah, Elvis. But, well, before we dive straight into yeah. this episode, do we want to do a? little toast yeah i think we should let's do it here as in every episode a toast to the roast toast to the roast oh yeah thought we do a yeah for anyone who's new to the show that for today Yes, that's that's uh, John. John always does a, a good job of morphing the toast of the rose song into whatever we're <laughs> covering for the day. But for those of you who may be new, the toast of the roast is the section of the show where we just kind of talk about what's been going on in our own lives, just to kind of catch yeah. up and not be so serious all the time. So, John, what what have you been up to? So, uh, man, we finally finished the the closing paperwork on the cell of our condo and we had you know moved out of ah. it and actually staying with a in a friend's house for the next probably couple months or so until our new place finishes up but funny enough the friend who we're staying with he isn't even here because he's down in Louisiana shout out to Nick down in Shreveport and oh, he's man. been there since like early March once you know, he's a teacher as well with me and our, you know, university went to online lessons. And so that happened over the spring break that they made that decision. And he's been down in Louisiana ever since then. So he hasn't even made it home since then. So we've kind of taken over his oh, wow. place, my wife and I, over like the last week and a half and boxes everywhere, piles of clothes and, you know, guitars out the wazoo and everything <laughs> Nothing wrong with guitars. Yeah, it makes me think like, man, if he was actually here, it'd be a little crowded. At least it would feel a little crowded. But, but no, he's a he's a great friend. <laughs> my for, uh, uh, 
bloodiness crash here. Oh yeah, everyone needs a needs a friend like that. As some of you might know, my friend Tom actually moved in, and it's it's a similar situation where we just have guitars and banjos and all sorts of instruments just everywhere. We have a second guitar rack in my studio now. I think we have like fifteen guitars, or not just guitars, oh, instruments, nice. just <laughs> laying around. Everywhere. I need you to have, like play an instrument on one of these episodes. We can switch roles. You can. You can do a little. Oh, I don't think anyone yeah. wants to hear that. <laughs> It'd have to be uh, I don't know. It have to be something something easy like uh, Mary had a little lamb or something. Sure, that. Oh wait. I think I think there's actually a Stevie Ray Vaughan song called. You Mary are correct. Lamb, so. <laughs> I could. I might. I might be able to pick my way through that one. Yeah. Allegedly. Yeah. yeah. Well. Oh yeah, there it is. Oh, wait, I don't no, know. That's, that's not it. it. It's something like that, I think. What? That's another oh, that, song. <laughs> it's, not, it, it's the other song that goes like that. <laughs> also, that sounds weird with the, the so, capo at the fifth fret, which is where I'm at on my acoustic for this tune. It's not classic blues not territory. Quite. There. <laughs> my wife and I have birthdays coming up in the next. Hers is in three days and mine is in a month oh, nice well happy days. early birthday to meg shout out yeah thank you I, i think i think i'm going to well not just me we are going to get bikes i think we're going to try to cycle around the greenway okay a little bit. as in like renting bikes or buys no buy, no we're actually going to like no, go I, out and buy them like Each for our birthday as our, our present to ourselves. Well, that's cool. <laughs> Or I guess you could say it's my present yeah. to her and her present to me. It doesn't really yeah. matter how you slice it. Oh, kind of comes from the same place. But yeah, yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, so we, but like I emailed a few bike shops because like I don't know anything when it comes to buying a bicycle. Yeah, I would not. And they were basically like, we have no bikes. They have all been bought. Oh, really? <laughs> is it due to the pandemic that people have been? Yeah. Interesting. He said that most of their used stock has been bought and usually they would have like a large, like, you know, influx of stuff coming in and out, especially this time of year when people are buying new bikes, but not so with the coronavirus. People just bought the bikes and wow. hung on to them. I suppose it's uh, bicycles and, uh, and pets. You keep hearing stories of, you know, animal shelters being emptied out from people adopting pets during this time, which is a great problem to have. But. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure the shelters are thrilled. So that's that's all that's going on in our little yeah. little world. I mean, my wife is still employed, luckily. Yeah, that's so very fortunate. She's uh, same working. With, uh, same with mine. She's been working home and will continue to work from home for at least the next month, from what it sounds like. So my yeah my question is, once the curve flattens and I, this isn't really a question you can answer, but once the curve flattens, we're basically just back where we were in like February January, right? Like maybe we're yeah. st still has to be extremely careful about you know the infection rates and and all that. So I don't I don't know when like could your wife be working from home for say the rest of the That's year? That's not out of the question. Especially with like with her company, they there could even be talk like, why do we need to pay you know a monthly rent you know or, or leasing out a building you know if most of our employees like well all of them can work from home and you know maybe every once in a while you might need to meet up in person but you know her job is such that it's very easy just to work from home because it's all you know emailing and phone calls and computer-based software so it's nothing that's like an in-person sort of like you know customer-based sort of job at all so yeah she could very easily be working from mm -hmm. home for the foreseeable future yeah i'm just i'm really curious about the kind of paradigm shift that's going to happen like pre and post i could see us probably like a lot of asian countries like developing more Um, widespread mask usage 
like even as like lockdowns are done and everything's open back up, like I could see us like once we get back to playing gigs, hopefully that everyone will be wearing masks or at least, you know, maybe 90% of the people will be wearing masks and you might get in. I don't know. I'm, I'm just like picturing this whole thing, like, like the, the culture of mask wearing, like people start to like, you know, right. different designs and like the fashion, you know, aspect of mask. Right. I, could, I don't know. I just have this image in my head that, that could become a thing. Like even with like, I, I'm sure it's already like becoming a thing. I know you can buy like your favorite NHL team will has a mask mm-hmm. you can buy and the, the money goes to a foundation yeah. or whatever. But it's like all designed. I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. Like, cause like the last phase. So Nashville has a four phase reopening plan, yeah. which is basically every two weeks they reassess the number of cases and transmission, you know, they have certain targets that they have to meet before they move on to the next phase. And I think music venues are the last phase. They're the last or maybe part of the phase three, I thought. I haven't looked at it fully, but yeah, you might be right there. It's basically towards the end. Bars and music venues. And it's like even large weddings would still be I don't, I don't know if band is the right word, but discouraged yeah. until you hit that phase four. And I, I don't know, man. I just can't see, like, I just can't see anything happening that quickly. I don't know. I, it's just, I think we're, I think we're in a new world. I think there was before coronavirus and then after coronavirus. You may be right. I mean, who knows? No but, or it goes on for another Maybe I'll be uh, flying a plane this time next that? year. <laughs> so maybe I'll be flying a plane this time next year. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, it could just be, you know, a year or so of this kind of on and off sort of, you know, social distancing and in and out. And then, you know, once vaccine becomes widely available, you know, assuming that this doesn't just start to mutate and evolve like year after year, kind of like our normal annual flu. Right. But I don't know, like that, I, I just... It'll be slow, I bet. And I can definitely see a lot of people developing more just like PPE wearing like in their daily lives when they go out. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you have no reason not to at this point. Yeah, have you seen the thing about um, trying to uh, compare this to like if if you're peeing on someone? Like if you're standing next to someone and you're both not wearing pants and the other guy pees, you're going to get some of that on your leg. But if you're wearing pants, it mostly gets <laughs> on your leg. You know, it might seep in a little bit. But if he's also wearing pants, because, of course, it's a guy in this scenario, because only a guy would pee on another person. Um, yeah. Sure. <laughs> sure, yeah, makes sense. So if he's wearing pants, though, too, it just stays with him. It stays in his pants, and you don't get any urine on you. <laughs> I think that's the best uh, analogy I've seen. <laughs> It's it's kind of crazy to me that we have to come up with those ridiculous, like, an, uh, analogies to, like, demonstrate to people why they yeah. should wear masks. Yeah, especially if you're going out. You it's know. crazy. And, but, hey, that's um, yeah. that's the world we live in, and that's uh, yeah. nothing much we can do about that. Hey, so. my friend, I got a question for you. What's that? What sort of coffee are you drinking? So I'm being <gasps> sacrilegious right now, and I'm actually just drinking water with lemon and honey. Oh, that sounds like like getting over a sickness sort of a drink. Is your throat been No, well, you? I I guess you would. No, I just enjoy that, like, because I already drank six cups of coffee today. <laughs> oh, You're like, what else am I going to do? And I was like... <laughs> Yeah, I'm like pacing around my house. Like I could drink tea. And it's like, no, I don't drink tea. It's like, oh well, I could just like make water and put honey in. Like, that is very so soothing. That's what I did. Yeah, the honey and lemon. It's just a nice drink. Well, I uh, decided to get my maybe cup and a half for the second cup, third cup. I'm not sure who's counting these days. Um, about the only thing I had in the house at the moment was the breakfast blend by Starbucks. So I have a cup of that in front of me, oh, which man. even their breakfast blend is pretty, I think it, 
darkly roasted. Like when you. Yeah, I think you meant to say charbucks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I joke. Starbucks Coffee is fine. Coffee That's what you. If if look, if Starbucks wants to sponsor us, I will happily give an endorsement yes, for people who want to drink their coffee. Sell our souls for free coffee. Maybe not that far. If the music industry has taught me anything, it is selling out is perfectly fine and reasonable. <laughs> That's our takeaway. <laughs> for the kids out there. That's it. So show's over. <laughs> kids out there. Sell out, you'll be happier. No. Probably not. All right. So John Prine, who probably, a man who I don't I don't think no, sell out actually, or the epitome of the non-sellout, you could say. The late great, yeah, he. Um, so it's kind of funny. Like I didn't, that's re- right. I didn't know much about his background. Um, I didn't know he was a Chicago guy. Me neither. It surprised me. Yeah, actually. born in Maywood, Illinois, which I'm not sure where that is at exactly. In '46, so he was just like born right after World War II. And then grew up in mm-hmm. one of the suburbs of Chicago. And even went to a, like, I know this place because from old acquaintances who live in Chicago still, they have a a lesson studio, kind of like independent school called the Old Town School of Folk Music. And uh, he went there as a teenager. Oh. And where he met, you know, some other kind of aspiring songwriters and such and started to kind of develop that circle who kind of uh, you know helped him uh, develop his career eventually. You know some of the people he met during those times at the old old town school of folk music. Which one of them? Funny, right. just a little side story. Uh, one of them became a friend of his named Steve Goodman, which probably most people uh-huh. probably don't know that name. Steve Goodman. He was another you know folk singer songwriter out of Chicago. Uh, he did have a big success with a song called City of New Orleans which was recorded by Arlo Guthrie, along with John Denver and Judy Collins and the Highwaymen. But, oh, okay. So some, yeah, some small names. As a you know, Chicago sports fan like myself, especially more a Chicago Cubs fan, Steve Goodman wrote the song Go Cubs Go, which uh, I think you know gives him a nice place in my heart for writing that. It's one of my You favorites. probably don't even know it, do you? You're not. No, I've you never go, heard it. <laughs> go Cubs, go. Go Cubs, go. Hey, Chicago, what do you it say? It sounds like an 80s theme the song. The Cubs are going to win today. <laughs> yeah. Like, it sounds It sounds like something they would play before a, a Cubs cartoon. Uh, well, I mean, in most cases, their baseball games are cartoons, so you're not too far off. Esther, didn't they win the World yeah, Series recently, man, though? 2016. Okay, so they're 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 doing all right. I mean, we we don't even have to talk about the Blackhawks because they're just terrible in perpetuity. <laughs> Whatever. So. What three three cups over the last <laughs> decade or so? Yeah, but they just fired the president of the uh, of the operation there oh. for no reason, which was very sh- yeah. shocking to the uh, hockey world. That was as of uh, like April twenty eighth or so, like oh, a couple wow, days, a couple days ago. Pretty uh, recent news then. Hot. Yeah, that's right. Hot off the press. But, uh, yeah, Chicago sports. <laughs> I had to throw that in who, there. When who I needs them? I was em. doing some research on old John Prine. But no one wants to hear us talk about sports or anything like that. Well, I don't even know if they want us <laughs> yeah, to talk about John Prine. Or music in general. <laughs> so, as you said, uh, so this was your oh, choice. The Sam Stone off his self-titled debut album that came out in... 1971, if not mistaken. Yep. And I think this song was listed on, you know, it's kind of a silly list. I think it was like Rolling Stones, like top 10 saddest songs of all time. I think it was was in that list, maybe number eight, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? How much much stock do you put in those Rolling Stone lists? I mean, not much at all, you know. But it's kind of a... Right, they're they're all kind of silly. And it is a very yeah. kind of a, a downer, yeah. you could say. Yeah, I like part of me would love to like go out to like an amateur open mic night and play this song, but the other part of me is like, eh, 
Maybe the crowd wouldn't want to hear it. <laughs> They're like, it's too sad. Yeah, it's definitely uh, one of those you're all in for the story or just like, this is too sad for myself. I don't want list- to listen to this. But, right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up and go get a drink. <laughs> well. But funny enough, you you uh, mentioned about like you know singing a song at a songwriter's round or like a like an open mic sort of a thing. Like that's really how John Prine got his start, and just like the right people starting to hear him at an open mic in Chicago. Yeah. Like there's a story of oh he was playing at a place in Chicago. Oh, what was it? I just missed the the name of the place. It was like. The Fifth Peg used to be on Armitage Avenue. I don't know if that's still there anymore. But it was there when he uh, had his first review, one of his first reviews by, of all people, a movie critic, Roger Ebert. Oh, really? I didn't know he did Probably music. back then, I guess, he you know, wrote reviews as well. And, and he said of Prine, you know, he appears on stage with such modesty. He seems to be backing into the spotlight. You know, he sings rather quietly and his guitar work is good, but he doesn't show off. He starts slow, but after a song hmm. or two, even the drunks in the room begin to listen to the lyrics. And then he has you. And, you know, that's a nice little quote of Ebert's. And you'll see that like similar sentiments from other people like Chris Christofferson, who eventually like heard him, too, and said similar things that once he started to like pull you into his songs, like he had you like the place would quiet down and, and listen to him sing mm-hmm. and then from there like within a couple yeah, of years well, he start, you know, gets a record deal and you know puts out his album his uh debut album and goes on from there i mean <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of it's kind of amazing his success story it's like the, the romantic notion know, of like, like being discovered in a you know random place on a random night, you know, on an open mic and just like the right person happens to be there and news, news spread. Yeah. You know, it's word of mouth goes around and you start to develop a reputation. Nice. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's, it's like kind of the dream that everyone kind of has mm-hmm. when they're younger. Right. Yeah. And then you get, which you know, as I said, like it was his, um, a guy who he met at that folk music school, Steve Goodman, was on the road, like opening up for Chris Christopherson, if I'm not mistaken. And they were at another place in Chicago, and uh, Steve Goodman persuaded Christopherson to go see Prime later on that night. And uh, like he said the same thing. Um, it's the quote that I was looking for. Like by the end of the first line, we knew we were hearing something different. And he describes like hearing John Prime, mm-hmm. like it must have been. The same as like as if you're stumbling onto Dylan when he first busted onto this village scene. I could I could see the I could see the comparison. Yeah. And I imagine like I, probably a lot of John Prime fanatics, like like hardcore fans, probably they may not like the comparison to Dylan. because um, it's kind of always been there, more or less. You know, at least spoken in the same sentence, you know, as him. You know, and Mm-hmm. Of course, Dylan, you know, had already been well known and on the scene for half a decade, at least more than half a decade by the time Prime was discovered. You know, he had yeah, he had already gone. <laughs> yeah, electric, you're right. Yeah, back in '65. <laughs> <laughs> huh? Yeah, I, I mean, I know we compared the tallest man on earth. Well, I guess we didn't do it. Other people compared tallest man on earth mm-hmm. to Dylan and, and now prime to Dylan. So I guess there's something to be said. If, if you're the guy everyone's comparing themselves to, you're probably doing pretty all right. It's the same thing, you know, not to get back into sports, but the whole, like, you always comparing basketball players to Michael Jordan or hockey players to Wayne Gretzky or, you know, like, and even if they're sure, not yeah. really the same Derek type Jeter. of player at all, it still gets brought up all the time. And but I can right. see it with with Dylan. You know, yeah. John Prime has that conversational aspect to his voice. He's not going to like belt out a tune per se. You know, he has very, you know, like 
somewhat like short phrases, or he doesn't hold out words or syllables long. It's like, it was very folksy, kind of a, a bouncy quality to his singing. And, you know, he mm-hmm. kind of, you think, to Dylan then, he kind of had a, a similar approach to singing. He wasn't going to be belting out tunes and, like, holding out long notes with a vibrato. That's and those, you know, <laughs> the, the stories that he wrote about and, the, like, the, the song forms. I mean, you can, you know, you can, you can see the, at least the comparison is not to say that, you know, and I'm sure he was somewhat to a degree influenced by what was going on because like the whole folk revival had been going on for a lot of that 60s and like the late psychedelic of the late 60s you know it's kind of all part of that zeitgeist at the time so but he was a different voice like that started to stick out that you know people started to gravitate to did you so a on the same line of, about his voice, I guess we're kind of jumping around in time here, but did you know he actually had uh, throat cancer, I believe? You know, now that you mentioned that, and, yeah. Yeah, so he had, he had an operation on his throat, and that's, I don't know if you listened to some of his more recent stuff, but he has like kind of a gravelly nature mm-hmm. to it, like like even more Bob Dylan-esque, and it, it's, uh, that's all because yeah. of the surgery. Which I had no idea until I started looking more into it. I just thought he had just damaged his voice from years of touring and whatnot. Yeah, that's usually the first thing you think <laughs> for singers who you know last that long right, and yeah. have performed that long. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that was only right, so. Yeah. Was well, no, that was the late '90s when he was diagnosed. I was gonna say I believe yeah. it was in the '90s. Um. But yeah, um, so did you know that Johnny Cash covered the song? Sam Stone? Stone. I think I came across that. It's been a while since I've heard it. I don't think I've listened to it this week. Yeah, well, and and Cash, rightly or wrongly, I guess probably rightly, was known as a kind of a really devout Christian. Yeah, well, especially, yeah, later on in life. Definitely became a devout Christian. There's there's the line in the chorus. I know where you're going with this. Uh, Jesus Christ died for nothing, uh-huh. I suppose. And Cash didn't want to sing that line. Uh-huh. And he asked Prine if he could replace it. And John Prine was kind of like, well, that's kind of the entire point of the song. Like, that's to... In Prine's words, that's that's kind of where the the song kind of like the emotion of it is like that the whole the whole song mm. is that line, and but in the end he was like, well, it's Johnny Cash, so I guess I'll let him do what he wants <laughs> since you know he's he wants to sing my song, so he switched the song, not the song, he switched the line from Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose to. Daddy must have heard a lot back then. I yeah, suppose. yeah, I, I did come across that, and then uh, or something like in another line, like Daddy must have suffered a lot back then, I suppose. So, which is very that's very Johnny yeah. Cash esque. Yeah. <laughs> he did a sim- he, he did a which similar I, thing to um, when he covered "Hurt" by Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails. They like, is it the Crown yes, of Thorns yep. line? <laughs> What did what did he switch it to? Well, it was, if I'm not mistaken, it was, oh, I think it was Crown of Shit, <laughs> and so he switched it to Crown of Thorns, which you know even has a more obvious you know biblical reference than uh, yeah he I took see. out the the mm. expletive that Trent had in there. Well, I mean, how old was Cash when he when he's saying that? Like in his eighties, yeah, I, so, I believe. Yeah. Still, one of the so. the coolest, yeah, most so. moving music videos, I would argue, is that one to her. Oh yeah, that's one of the great examples of a song that an artist covered, but then it became yeah. their song. Definitely, not legally, of course. 
<laughs> Almost about, yeah. <laughs> Emo- emotionally. <laughs> Was it till after that that every once in a while I'd start to oh. have students say they want to learn Hurt? <laughs> and being a diehard Nine Inch Nails fan, especially growing up in the, you know, as a teenager in the 90s, like a, it's both uh, just humorous to me and then also like, okay, cool, yeah. We'll learn, we'll learn the cash version. <laughs> And then you show them the you show up with the nine inch nails version and they're yeah, like, what right. is this? You go, you know. <laughs> yeah, that was not quite right. Oh man, that was, that yeah, one that was note a bad note. Yeah. In the first chord is a is a killer. And of course, they switch it to. It's it's more palatable. Definitely a little, a little less grinding. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was I? I had something else here I wanted to say. Oh, yeah. So I don't know about you, but my favorite thing about John Prine is the way his lyrics work with each other. Like he has a very John Prine. Like he created his own style of like rhyme and like meter to his to his yeah lyrics go for it and i like it. he I, I was listening to an interview with him and he said he would he would switch words based on the way they sounded because he wanted the words to hit your ear okay. the right way and the interviewer was like well what about the meaning of the of the song like how would you like keep it all meaning what you wanted what it to mean and john prime was just kind of like well it's my job to write the song not to assign it <laughs> other people can do that and so yeah he was all about he was all about making that that lyric hit hit you just the right way it, whether it be like the syllable number of syllables in the line or or just like the way phonetically how it, how mm-hmm. it came off sounding um, and he said, another quote, make sure you write something that you like, because the worst thing that could happen is you write something that becomes a hit. <laughs> yeah, I like that. <laughs> uh, so I thought, I don't know, that's, that to me is really intriguing that he's not, I mean, clearly he writes with a meaning in mind, but... He's he doesn't get so hung up on it to keep away from the art of making the lyric kind of ebb and yeah. flow really well. Yeah, I like that. In some way, you could almost argue that he was a a proto rapper of you know how he looked at the sound yeah, of syllables I mean, being an important aspect of the song versus just the you know the literal definition of what you're saying. Yeah, and even the way that this song starts, Sam Stone came home to his wife and family. Um, you would think that that rhyme would continue through the entire rest of the song, whereas like kind of like that really simple like, you know, home yep. Stone, you know, all that. But but it doesn't. He switches it. Um. Sam Stone came home to his wife and family after serving in the conflict overseas. In the time that he served, he shattered all his nerves and left a little shrapnel in his knee. So, like, I, I don't know. It's like, and he'll do that where you think a rhyme's going to come and, and it doesn't, and then he'll throw in rhymes where you don't yeah. think they're going to come. Yeah. I like it. I, I'm not a lyricist, like, by any means, you know, but to me, I, I thought that was quite uh quite good yeah definitely it, especially with the song that's all about the 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 story you gotta like keep people interested right oh for sure yeah it's like that interest like you're not sure what's coming up next in the story um and and then how he tells it in such a yeah sometimes it very much rhymes other times it's like you know after serving in the conflict overseas you're like well that doesn't rhyme with what just came before but then he pairs that up with right. a little shrapnel, shrapnel in his knees at the end, and then it brings it back around. Like, oh, it's that kind of that great kind of 
delaying of the expected rhyme almost. Okay. Right, yeah, yeah. And one of the lines, since we're and, kind of talking lyrics here, like one of the lines that still throws me off, and it might go to that approach of the sound of syllables and words and not as much the meaning, is uh, actually it's right after that Jesus Christ line that we were referring to earlier when it says, little pitchers have big ears, don't stop to count the years. Like little pitchers have big ears. Is and. I have a theory. Okay. I have a theory on this. I'd love to hear it. And it's not. I don't. So, looking at the lyrics, it's written as pitchers, like a uh, you something you hold to drink it. But I think it's like I, I. I imagine it as like a picture. Okay, little pictures, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that that's what I think it it is. Have big ears and. If you think a picture has a is worth a thousand words, so he's saying, "Well, you, I can't, I can't uh, communicate what I'm trying to say here." But I think, I think it's a play on a picture has is worth a thousand yeah. words. Saying little little pictures have big ears. Mm-hmm. Don't stop to count the years. I think, I think it's kind of encompassing, like. A small, a small picture, or maybe a meaningless picture, can have large meaning to someone who was, you know, a soldier who was over in Vietnam. Maybe a picture of a hut or something. Yeah, something that might seem back mundane these, these to memories. someone else, but can bring back countless memories to another person. Right, yeah. that's what I'm trying to say. So, like a, a seeming, a seemingly small or meaningless picture can can bring back memories for someone. Who had has a different experience? Than I like that. Yeah, because when I you know listen to the song, I think he says pictures, but then looking up you know his lyrics online, kept seeing it saying little pictures. So I'm like, oh, so I'm not you know wasn't sure which one it was, but I like that better. I was like, yeah, it, it, yeah. The lyrics say pit pictures, but I I think picture. Yeah. I, I mean, I could I could be wrong, but like oh, like like John Prine said. I can supply the meaning to it. It can yeah, mean whatever right. it wants, what, whatever I want it to mean to me. So, and that last line of the, his chorus is great. You know, sweet songs never last too long on broken radios. And it's a, just kind of like a humorous yeah. line too at the end. Like, you know, like well, a broken radio, yeah, it's not going to play any songs for you. So, <laughs> he actually um, he wrote that line. His dad would listen to the radio. On the he put it on the window seal, and he would pour John Prine like a you know an orange soda while his dad drank mm-hmm. a beer, and he said that occasionally the radio would get knocked down, and that he would have to like you know fix the <laughs> antenna and try to make it work. I thought that was interesting too. How he kind of like that that was like that one line is like a very particular memory yeah. that he has but he's he he uses his own experience to kind of craft this story i love it hey you might have solved the other mystery you know talking about pouring of the orange juice maybe that orange juice was in a little pitcher of orange juice where's where's that I don't line? Know, i'm just saying like you know you talked about his dad would pour him orange juice while listening to the radio maybe it was in a little pitcher oh I see. Yeah, so that could all be that could all be his own yeah. personal. Maybe you know, maybe it was a Mickey memories, Mouse which, picture, like a souvenir picture of Mickey Mouse that had big ears. And then I think I think this is I think we're done with this. <laughs> well, I mean, now that you say that, I guess I guess an alternate meaning is if his dad is pouring him like a pitcher of orange juice or something, then have little pitchers had big ears. He could be referring to himself as the little yeah. pitcher. And you could just be back remembering back to, to his childhood back before, you know, the yeah. soldier maybe before little he went to war. Little kid with big ears. So I mean that that could describe could, him. Could could have mm-hmm. I mean who's who says we couldn't uh analyze the lyrics for <laughs> a living John? That's a that by God we should charge for that analyzation right. right there. <laughs> Like, like maybe the <laughs> the, maybe the orange juice was in the picture that 
<laughs> so what did you find interesting musically or, or anything? Well, because it's not a complex so, song. Yes and no. So it's like a prime example of like a type of a, you know, traditional folk tune that you a, a what kind of example john a, yes, a prime yeah. example <laughs> <laughs> of a uh, it's a great example of a folk tune that you have to know it or else you're going to make a mistake like a lot of folk tunes you can anticipate what's coming and so you know as we we're just talking about his lyrics and how you might anticipate a rhyme or a pairing of words coming up that he doesn't do that's the same thing that happens within a song like harmonically like you might anticipate certain moves with a chord you know this sort of traditional folk style that he either doesn't do or delays on it or repeats something that you wouldn't expect to be repeated and so it's kind of a long song form but and um, perhaps like this is another Dylan-esque sort of comparison that people might make is once you get through the song form, it then just repeats itself. There's not a lot of like extra, hmm. as songwriters might call it, channels, like a channel of, you know, between a chorus and a verse or even having a bridge. There's no bridge in this song. It's just verse, almost like you could call like a, there's like a pre-chorus and then the chorus you know, the chorus always being when right. it gets to the, you know, there's a hole in daddy's arm where all the money goes, which is such a oh, moving and deeply almost a depressing lyric right there. Oh, yeah. I mean, that those those two lines, there's a hole in daddy's arm where all yeah. the money goes and Jesus Christ died for nothing, I suppose. that That is yeah. the entire song. And you might wonder, like, where's With, that? Without, with the, talking again or already back to the lyrics again you know the christ line you know hole in daddy's arm like that makes me think of like the literal like also like the hole you know when christ was up on the cross the holes through his he granted their you know nails through his arms but i think i don't think that's uh accidental to kind of like have that imagery and a hole in an arm and then you know the picture of christ dying you know mm-hmm um, it's, a, it's really masterfully yeah, written. It's great. So the song here is in the key, at least it's recorded in the key of F, which is not an easy key to play on guitar. But he's most, no. uh, probably the main guitar track, the acoustic track is capoed at the fifth fret, as I may have mentioned earlier. And he it does follow um, a fairly common like picking pattern oh sorry here we go and a lot of people will refer to that as like travis picking named after you know the old cowboy picker singer merle travis and that just sets up a very commonly sort of like kind of a, almost like an oscillating wave then it goes to the four to the five so that's setting you up with, for the verse so that's pretty basic you know one four mm-hmm. five one are three pillars of harmony our three major chords in our key. And then for that pre-chorus, he goes to the four, another, you know, so far common move. If it stays there, maybe a little longer than you would think. And that move is like where some of the coloring starts to pop out. Is like he goes to a D7. Oh, sorry. It's shaped like a D7. It would actually be a, a G7 chord, which is your two chord. So a two chord to your five, C. But then he repeats that move again. And then you have to walk up into the chorus. And that's my favorite. 
perhaps my favorite part of this the tune musically is just that yeah the, the slightly up, delayed yeah. it's like he like pulls it back he's like yeah there's a hole daddy there you go <laughs> yeah yeah but then he, the, he killed and then it the chorus is completely different you have a one to a two minor which was you know that's the chord that always yeah. throws me so in this capo position it looks like a d minor shape so it looks like you're doing c to d minor f to g but then he doesn't repeat that as again you'd maybe think that would be repeated for a chorus the second half of the chorus one to what looks like an a minor or a six minor and then that two dominant chord again tier five so he throws in some you know different chords as like uh, some of those like old school country players who i've you know kind of sat in with here and there they would say like oh he's using one of those minor chords <laughs> which you know you don't normally get in a lot of like traditional folk or traditional you know country and western songs so he throws in two minor chords for you and yeah. even a couple extra you know uh seventh chords as well so again like you wouldn't be able to anticipate like the, those the as sevens and the minors were easily if you didn't know the song ahead of time it'd be hard to anticipate yeah, and I feel like those chords are kind of what make the song like it kind of like elevates the song to like one you're it keeps you interested cuz like you said it kind of just repeats itself mm-hmm. form-wise. And it kind of I don't know, to me it kind of makes it the song sadder, which is like a bad descriptor, I guess, but Yeah, I need to come up with a better word than sad, but cuz it's Cause it is, but I mean, it's more than that though too. But yeah, I I think I'd agree. It right? Helps it, yeah. It gives it more motion from section to section, and uh, helps create that wave. Even I guess. I guess if you were a songwriter, kind of simplistic repeating of the form. You know, going through just verse, pre-chorus, or even just like a verse-verse chorus, if you want to call it that, that you go through three times and then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, is there is there anything about the melody that sticks out to you? Only again, you know, he has that very conversational approach to singing. You don't have any, like I guess, like hole when he says a hole in a in Daddy's arm. You know, that might be the longest held note. <laughs> there's a hole, or there's a hole in daddy's arm. You know, nothing is a long note. Like, he doesn't hold right. out any long notes. So that's just kind of interesting. You know, it makes it very singable to even, like, the most tone-deaf person. You know, they could probably sing along to the song very easily, you know, in at least from the, right. you know, like, the rhythmic flow of the tune. That's the hardest thing for me when I try to play this song is just like getting the the meter of the the lyrics yeah. just right. Well, it, it's like you almost couldn't even if you try to sing it like him, it'd almost be like a rabbit hole that you wouldn't be able to get out of. You almost have to sing it yourself because yeah, it does have a very sort of right. You know, sometimes it'll delay a word or. It's not as easily da 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 da. These are the words of the song, and it's always sung like this. Yeah, you, know, you know what I mean. <laughs> right. There's more of an ebb and a flow to it. Speaking of, speaking of covers, you reminded me of a, another thing he said in one of <laughs> one of his live shows. Oh, yeah. This it's kind of just random, but but it it made me chuckle. He said, "I don't I don't usually uh you know." do covers of, of songs because I can hardly sing my own. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> just yeah. Me. Yeah. He's, he, the guy, the guy had a really good sense he of did, humor. And that, again, like that sense of modesty, I think was always there, which makes an artist perhaps more appealing than if they were just full of themselves. Like, you know, I think, you know, his fan base, like people who got drawn into his songwriting appreciated his like down to earth approach said like he had like a very sort of 
blue collarness to his songs, to his songwriting that makes them even more relatable. Even if you weren't, even if you weren't yeah, a Vietnam that... vet with a drug addiction problem, who you know overdoses, and you can relate to it still on just the basic kind of human level. You know the. Yeah, it's man, it, it's it's really sad that we had to had to lose John Prine to the the, the pandemic and and all that because. He he really yeah, was a talent. Yeah, he was. It was really sad. Um, but that's the way it goes, I suppose. I did want to mention a little bit about who he had on this recording. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's it's, right. Uh, another good quote I found of his talking about, like you know, what he. Well, one uh, first, I did come across something that you're mentioning his quote about like doing covers and that, you know, he doesn't do them because he can hardly sing his own. Uh, one of the first offers he got that he turned down was to do, it was like a one-off record deal to do an album of covers, but he turned that down. And so this would have been right around 1970, I believe. And then not soon after that, he got the record deal huh. that he did in which he, you know, went to make his debut album which he recorded a couple tunes up in, uh, where were the, a couple songs were recorded in New York with uh, his brother, Dave, and the same guy I mentioned earlier, Steve Goodman, who he had known back in his Chicago days. But then the rest were tracked at the uh, American Sound Studio in Memphis, Tennessee, just a few hours down the road from us. And he had the, you know, the house band of that time. They're called the Memphis Boys. So he had literally the same house band that tracked on Elvis tracks to, you know, play on his album. And, you know, he was very, he was almost like intimidating. He's saying like, you know, here I'm going in. I've never been in the recording studio before. And I have like the same players who played for Elvis Presley playing my tunes now, like. You know, how does that happen? Well, it is really intimidating for like I've I've noticed if if you're not kind of used to that environment, just going just going into that environment is intimidating sure. on its own. And then when you add, you know, the Memphis boys into the equation is like holy cow. Yeah. You know, it's it's hard it's hard to like fathom. Yeah, there is a fun little quote. Uh, one of the percussionists in the house band, Hayward Bishop, said that, you know, when Prine came in, talked about his songs, you know, there's no evidence of groove, whatever. And I was hungry for groove. Prime came off like a folk poet, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Is that he says that maybe, I don't know if he means that in a derogatory way, but he, was like, he came off like a folk poet. Well, he was a folk poet. And he's like, but he's like, <laughs> right. Like all of his songs were in the same key, <laughs> so kind of complaining. And you know, going back to Sam Stone, there's no drums or percussion on this track at all. It's just you know acoustics, that like church-like hymn organ that you hear that does the beginning, which gives it a very oh sort yeah, what one of, of my favorite instruments. Yeah, yeah, very cool texture and immediately kind of brings you into almost like a as if you're either at a are you at a service or are you at a funeral perhaps you know is the organ you know funeral at a church you know would very fitting you know if you want to look at it very literally in the choice of that you know organ for the beginning of this song but but then i think the weirdest thing about this recording is what reggie young is doing so reggie young was the guitarist in the Memphis Boys session player. And, you know, obviously he recorded with Elvis Presley, but he was the guitarist on records of everyone from Dusty Springfield to Deanne Warwick, Willie Nelson, Waylon, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lee Lewis, Merle, I mean, George Strait, the Highwaymen, big session player, guitarist. And I believe it's him. He's playing that like sitar sound. Or I don't, and I'm not even sure if it's a real sitar or more like a sitar guitar sort of, you know, 
combination that I've uh, I've come across in past yeah. like sessions before. So you have that sitar sound. Yeah, like the it's like the, the, the banjo guitar type of thing, but sitar. And so I think that's the guitar. most like interesting choice instrumentally on this track is having that sitar. But he's playing it like he would be playing like a telly over like a country ballad. He's doing a lot of these like six intervals, like uh-huh. you know that sort of stuff that you hear. But it's on the sitar. Um. But given the time of this, you know, 1971, this is like, you know, we're just out of the psychedelic 60s. And, you know, the Beatles were discovering, you know, Indian music and ragas and, you know, getting into utilizing sitars. And then the Rolling Stones start to have like sitars on their stuff. So the use of this, having like a sitar isn't as out of the blue or like, as a random thing as you would think, given the time period of when this was recorded. I still think it's kind of interesting they chose to go that way. Right. Yeah. No, yeah, when I first heard the song, I was like, what is that? No, like, you don't. It's <laughs> like, you just don't expect it at all. But, but it does make sense when you, when you think kind of like the scene in the, in the early 70s and what he yeah. would probably been listening yeah. to and, for the last know, like four ways, or five uh, years. John Prime, you know, in a weird way, it was a product of the 60s, especially when you look at the, you know, you know, the Vietnam War protest and, you know, that kind of on that side. So he's, he's probably like, yeah, cool. Let's use this. Have a sitar. Go ahead. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Go, go wild, guys. So I think that might be about all I have to talk about for Sam Stone. Yeah, I mean a simple song. There's there's nothing there's nothing we haven't spoken about um recording wise. I do think it's interesting to note there's like a really like distinct sound that you get from like late sixties through kinda like okay. the mid seventies acoustic recordings. It's like it's almost like this like warble oh, okay. in the yeah. in the guitar from the tape. And for my money, it's like the most identifying mm-hmm. feature of a recording from back then. And I don't know why I'm so sensitive to it. And I haven't even really been able to recreate it. Cause like in order to do that, I would have to get a tape machine that kind of like runs at like varying speeds. Cause it like, you know, is like not in that great condition. Yeah. <laughs> it's like constantly supplying slightly different voltage to the motors and stuff. <laughs> but um it's it is really it is really interesting if you go back and kind of listen to kind of like all those guys. Uh you you'll kind of hear like you'll hear a lot of it in like Dylan tunes or uh uh Crochy yeah. tunes. You know what saying this now I think so. I I think I'm picking up on what you're describing. And that's really hit me you know in the forefront as far as like what could be going on but i yeah i think i know what you're talking about it's like the sound of a small tape machine being used (laughs) for like hours a day to to write songs (laughs) yeah like it's like old tape on like a not great machine but like it's like it's such a characteristic sound. I, I really like it actually. I wish I could recreate it. I probably can if I went into a UAD has a plugin that yep. you can you can mess with like the wow and flutter, which that's just like kind of yeah. like the variation, the modulation that you get with tape. So you can go and you can mess with all that. So you could probably get a similar effect these days by doing that. But I don't know something something about the era that. St- stands out to me recording wise that I Interesting. really yeah. kind of like enjoy. That. But other than that, there's, I mean, it's a recording from, you know, 1971. Almost, uh, it's nothing, nothing, to, nothing too fancy. Yeah, next year would be 50 for this. Oh, next year, huh? How about that? <laughs> Man. Yeah. 
That's kind of that's kind of crazy. I guess <laughs> it's not it's not that crazy for those of us who were born in you know the eighties and nineties, but for someone who oh, was yeah. around in so. the seventies, I bet I bet it's crazy to them. And if you are that yeah. person, we'd like to write us an email Tell describing you your experiences. <laughs> yeah. Tell us how you how That's you feel an about a plus the, uh, segue. The tape machine's Once effect you know. on acoustic guitars. We'd love to hear it. They can do that at coffee and, and, where, where, and where can they do at that gmail.com. at gmail.com. Email us there or uh, find us on Instagram, coffee and consoles as well. Not consoles and coffee. That's a different Instagram account. <laughs> Yes, that is a. Is that a different Instagram a, account? An account dedicated to. We're gonna have to buy the right vintage video game consoles. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's we, pretty cool. We, we we're it. both kind of into that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, coffee and consoles. So go consoles support them coffee, too. Why whichever not? Whichever way. Yeah. Yes. Whichever way you want, but only one will make. So it with us. that, yeah. Go for it, man. Well, for this <laughs> for and this I'm week's John. episode, I Thank have you for been listening. Kevin. We we hope to hear from you soon, and hopefully, we can all get together eventually, maybe in a month yeah, or two. Have a good and old back hang out for real barbecue. How about that? Well, thank you again. That's right. That sounds good to me. Long days and pleasant nights, my friends. All right. Mm-hmm.